Our reading today is James 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are ju to be judged under the law as though, uh, of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the very word of God. You are sitting at the airport, waiting to board a plane. You can see the small separator between priority and regular lanes. There's a three by six carpet on the priority side that has not been washed since the first moon landing. <laughs> and boarding time comes and you hear what sounds like, we now invite all of our customers who are platinum, gold, myrrh, and frankincense to board through the priority lane. From the depth of our heart, thank you for your loyalty. I don't know why I switched to a British accent. <laughs> Next, we invite all those who are rich, successful, and well-off. We appreciate your business. You, too, can board through the priority lane. And then our turn comes. And now all of you who have the honor of breathing the same air as the others, you may board on the other side of the separator. And don't dare walk on that carpet. You get the point. If you've traveled before, you've probably witnessed some partiality. It's all around us. It can be thinly veiled as customer service or loyalty perks, but after all, it is self-serving. Airlines treat better those who bring them revenue, and people favor those who could elevate them. Could this partiality be present among Christians? James is writing to believers in the context of class system and land ownership, 
and he seems to suggest that partiality has made its way through a priority lane to the assembly together. In a letter of short directives and memorable one-liners, he gives half a chapter to this topic, likely a reflection of how prevalent this issue was or how dangerous it could be. It needed to be addressed to preserve the integrity of faith and witness. James proceeds to address three aspects relating to partiality. It's doubt, it's absurdity, and it's remedy. The doubt of partiality, the absurdity of partiality, and the remedy of partiality. First, the doubt of partiality, which is in the first four verses. Believers who read James's letter were in different parts of the Eastern Mediterranean. It was common for those living in that culture to seek self-promotion by honoring those who could advance their cause. The rich and the powerful, rulers and landowners, religious leaders and others. Maybe it was not different for believers to do the same within the church. Picture a gathering of believers within that system with visitors or new converts entering the assembly and being told where to sit. You could imagine elders, deacons, or ushers directing the rich, powerful, and extraordinary to sit up front or to be given fancy seats. After all, maybe they'll give more money to the church or the gold ring of power they wore means they could help lift up some of the members. But the poor and ordinary were told to stand in the back or even to sit on the ground. In the words of the song, nothing in their hand they could bring. James lovingly directs his brothers and sisters in the faith not to show such partiality. It was not a new command. God himself had spoken plenty on this topic in the law. In Leviticus 19.15, in Deuteronomy 1.17, and in 16.19. Partiality was also condemned by Solomon in Proverbs 24 by Jesus in John chapter 7, and by Paul in Romans 2, verse 11, where he says that God does not show any partiality. And James does something remarkable in verse 1 when he says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The exact Greek words here, which are hard to put into English, translate something like this. Let it not be that you have the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ impartiality. Let it not be that you have the, pay, the faith in partiality. He's directly linking our faith in Jesus to the faithfulness of Christ, and that if we show favoritism, we would be denying his faithfulness. We cannot hold faith and partiality together. If we do that, we would be on shaky ground, because faith and favoritism are not compatible. If you go down to verse 4, in fact, you see James condemns partiality as evil. This is a great place to apply the famous commandment of Jesus from Matthew 7, judge not that you may not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. If we judge with partiality, we will be judged severely. The thinking behind such judgment and distinction is foolish, selfish, and as James says, evil. It is not compatible with true faith. In another hard-to-translate verse, verse 4, 
The exact Greek words of James here are, are you not doubting in yourselves, becoming judges with evil thoughts? In fact, I'm a, I'm a bit, it's, it's not optimal that the ESV says, have you not made distinctions? Because the, the word, the same verb that James uses is the same verse he used in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. That's the same verb. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. The one who doubts God is unstable, is wishy-washy, a rudderless ship swayed by the waves of prevalent opinions, a fragile leaf that is carried all around by the winds of change. So when a believer practices favoritism, or when a Christian is marked by partiality, or when a church exercises discrimination, the seeds of doubt are sown. And such seeds threaten the whole foundation of the entire structure. If they were to take hold and grow, they would shake our faith and they would direct our eyes away from the faithfulness of our Lord. Partiality means doubting that Jesus Christ is faithful to build his church from all peoples for the glory of God who grants faith to the ones he loves. This is the summary of those fourth verses. Partiality means doubting that Jesus Christ is faithful to build his church from all peoples for the glory of God who grants faith to the ones he loves. Doubt and faith are not compatible. Partiality cannot occupy the same realm as the church of Jesus Christ, which Paul says is to be the pillar of the truth. This is why James equates it with evil. And doubt does not come from faith. Favoritism does not come from faith. We cannot hold faith and partiality together just as one cannot hold evil and righteousness in the same hand. And so the commandment to let go of partiality is a call to believe Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, and to pursue his righteousness. And then James moves to the second aspect in, the, in verses 5 through 7, which is the absurdity of partiality. So in these verses, James elaborates on why partiality is absurd. Believers were trying to flatter and elevate some of the same people who abused them. They lived in a society where the powerful and well-off could easily manipulate the systems of justice and economy to favor themselves. Jewish believers can look back at their own history and see how their grandfathers suffered as they looked at outward appearances. Remember Saul? He was taller than anyone else, and he was very handsome. So they made him king to their own detriment. He would enlist the men in his army and use power to his own ends. Even Samuel looked at the handsome and stately sons of Jesse. But God looked at the heart of David, a shepherd, and saw in him one who would shepherd his own people and take up their cause. Still, at the time of James, people, who would, seek, people would seek the favor of landowners who would in turn drag those people into court to strip them of their land. It was very common that poor people would borrow money from landowners to be able to plant crops 
But then those landowners would drag those poor people immediately to court, asking them to pay the money immediately, and then they would take away both money and land from them. This is why he says they are dragging you into court. But also rulers and religious leaders would even mock the name of Jesus, persecute his followers, even disdain the Lord's Supper, and make fun of Christian worship. How absurd it is to seek to elevate such people were they to come in in the assembly together. In many parts of the world, when the wealthy and powerful visit a church, they are given seats up front, padded with crimson cushions and elaborate decoration. They are exalted and given places of honor. Many of them are unbelievers. Some of them even oppose the Christian faith and seek to glorify themselves. This practice was common in the first century, but also all too common ever since. In later Christian Rome, in, the medieval, in medieval Europe, in the times of the Crusades, to the times of the kings and, and queens of Great Britain, and even today in places like Russia. It may not appear the same way here in America, but could partiality be rearing its head in other ways? After all, the search for fame, power, and riches has been a, new, a universal sin throughout history, and partiality is not a specifically Jewish or American sin, it's a human sin. Could it be that the church favors those who are famous, elevates the opinions of those who give the most money, honor those who have titles, bend its beliefs to suit those who would possibly benefit us in the city, in the economy, in the courts, in politics? Could we be doing that even when some of the people we favor blaspheme the honorable name by which we were called? At a more local level, are there ways we could be practicing partiality which could undermine our witness? We may not have kings and queens, people with gold rings of power, or a lot of poor people with shabby clothes. It might be in subtle way like snobbery, or even an internalized pride that shows itself by staying far from certain people or avoiding interactions with them, or scooting our seats away from those who may smell a certain way, or simply disregard those who look ordinary or unkempt, or maybe, maybe, maybe for us, even favor those who do not look fancy or who look relaxed just like us because we take pride that we look relaxed or it could be in less subtle ways, much less subtle ways like discrimination based on gender, ability, preferences, appearances, race, accent, or others. Or maybe the question is for me and for each and every one of us, am I seeking for people to be partial toward me? Even if I don't say it out loud, do I have, does my pride direct me to seek favoritism and to gain favor in the eyes of others. The reality of why James is addressing this is because all such things threaten unity. They dishonor God. They insult his image bearers. They sow doubt in faith and they undermine the faithfulness of Jesus. And this same Jesus died to give his promise to those who love him. James here is pleading with the believers like a father who loves his children. 
In, in verse 5, he says, my beloved brothers and sisters. He is asking them to look through his, this fog of partiality, perceive the absurdity, and see the better way of God. Our God loves the poor, the stranger, the widow, and the fatherless. For our sake, the Lord of glory became poor so that we might become rich. He chose what is foolish, weak, low, and despised in this world, what the world considers as nothing, the things that are not, in order to shame the wise, the strong, and the things that are. Now, that is absurdly glorious. How can it be that the God of all wealth, wisdom, power, and authority became poor for our sake? There's a hymn that says, amazing love. How can it be that God would do that for me? And in that, he was pleased to give the kingdom to those who he so loved that he gave his only begotten son. And the son declared, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. With Christ, we, all believers, will inherit all things, and he will preserve us so that to that day when our faith becomes our sight and our hope becomes our reality. The, in the words of 1 Corinthians, um, faith, hope, and love abide. Now these, these three great abide, but the greatest of these is love because faith will one day be no more. Faith will become our sight and our hope will become our reality, but love will endure and will be perfected for all eternity. And this is the promise he has to his beloved to those who love him. Does this, does this not increase our hope and enrich our faith and cause us to see the logic that is complete opposite of favoritism and partiality and shows how absurd they are? This logic that James is saying embodies the perfect wisdom of our God that he chose those who are weak and poor and despised. The song we just sang, he welcomes the weakest and the poor so that they can find delight and rest in him. And this brings us to the third point, which is the remedy of partiality that James will cover in verses 8 through 13. Partiality is inconsistent with true faith because of whom we believe in. And partiality is absurd because of the wisdom and promises of our God. And partiality can be remedied by right understanding of love and practice of mercy. See, in the same Leviticus passage where God outlaws partiality in Leviticus 19, 15, and 16, he also announces the law of the kingdom of heaven. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Partiality is not love. Partiality is self-serving. It only seeks self-promotion. It is not true love of neighbor. It is, in truth, in reality, love of oneself. The partial person hopes that he or she can receive something in return for flattery, for exaltation, for giving an honor seat, for fawning on the rich and powerful. But the law calls this a transgression. The listeners to James's sermon from an immediate Jewish background and still living in a majority Jewish context understood this warning. Fail in one and you fail in the entire law. 
Maybe partiality was considered a lesser sin in some of their minds. So James argues from what is called the greater to the lesser. In, in verses 10 and 11, he basically tells them that murder has bigger consequences in this life than adultery. But if a killer says, oh, well, at least I did not commit adultery, this does not exonerate him from either. Nor does it make either sin less egregious. In the same manner, one cannot say, I showed some partiality, but at least I did not murder or commit adultery. James is basically elevating the insult of partiality to a sin against the entire law, and as such against the law giver. Partiality's consequences in this life do not change the eternal weight of dishonoring God and falling short of his glory. In this life, one goes to jail for murder, but may not go to jail for adultery. But neither one nor the partial may inherit the kingdom of heaven if they do not repent and receive mercy. The power of these words rests not only in a written text that was given 2,600 or 3,000 years ago, but in the person of the triune God who declared them, who in Christ Jesus fulfills the law, not by eliminating it, but by reflecting the will of the one lawgiver in the commandment to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, this should be freeing news for us. The royal law of love of God and neighbor is the law of liberty to which we have been saved. It is the law of the kingdom he gives to those who love him. He delights to give his kingdom to those whom he loves and to those who love him. It is the freedom we now have in Jesus which reflects the will of God. In Christ, we have received mercy and grace and acceptance. We did not receive them in order to reject the law. We have rather been given a new vantage point to love the commands of God through the eyes of Jesus. Because they have been infused with the interpretation of the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ himself, who imposed this law on us. By calling us to love God and neighbor, he is imposing it on us, but he is also calling us, he's begging us as he frees us from partiality to show mercy, honor, love, and grace. It is not enough to know about this law or accept it or hear it. Chapter 1, verse 25 says, it is the doers of the law, it is the doers of the law of liberty who will be blessed. Hearing without doing is not enough. Next week we will hear that faith is a, without works is dead. After all, we will give an account for every one of our words and deeds. Our faith will be measured and known by our fruit, and the heavenly rewards will be proportionate to our work in the kingdom. The mercy we have received frees us from our bondage to sin. It brings us out of slavery in Egypt, but it does not leave us in the wilderness. It ushers us into a new kingdom, a new land, a new family where we have rules to obey and ways to practice that are good for our own, are good for our brothers and sisters, and they reflect the will of the Savior and benefit all citizens 
of the city of God. We are no longer in the city of men. We are part of the city of God where partiality has no root and where love is the law of liberty. So brothers and sisters, have we been saved? Have we tasted the goodness of the Lord? Have we received mercy from God? And our answer should be, yes, you bet we have. And our practice must show by our own mercy toward others that we truly understand the weight of God's mercy toward us. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. And we demonstrate a growing desire to obey the laws of the kingdom of heaven. Our works reveal our hearts and the depth of our understanding of God's love for, our, for us and Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Should we not show mercy, the consequences would be eternal. All of us believers realize that we deserve God's judgment. Our worth is not in our own selves. There's nothing we can do to be saved, nothing in our hands we can bring simply to the cross we cling. But once we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, we just said it today, there will be no condemnation because the law of the Spirit of life is in us if we live by it and his, the love of God has been poured through our hearts through Jesus Christ. And that's a relief because we know we still cannot keep the law of God perfectly. Our acts of mercy on the day of judgment will reflect our understanding of his grace and will show that our heart has been made right by the blood of Christ and that we have been united to him by faith. And his mercy will triumph once more on the final day as we stand before him and receive the promised eternal life. If we show partiality in either direction, James is speaking about partiality toward the rich, but we might be showing partiality toward the rich, those who look different, those who could advance our cause, or the poor. We are not exercising the reality that both need the grace and mercy of the Lord for their salvation. Neither fawning on the rich nor simply covering the physical needs of the poor are enough. Neither is merciful. Both must know they need Jesus. Fawning on the rich and increasing their pride will even add blindness to their eyes of seeing their need for Jesus. And only covering the needs of the poor will also not show them that they still need the mercy of God. So how will... How will the rich among us, if we contribute to their pride, how will they know their sinfulness and realize their need for the mercy of God? So partiality, once more, would be an insult to the grace of God, would sow disunity in the body of Christ and is worthy of judgment. And judgment, James says, is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Now these are strong words from the brother of Jesus. He knew a thing or two about lack of mercy. He saw his own brother wrongfully accused, mercilessly tortured, and brutally murdered. He himself had not believed him, but he witnessed him show mercy to the poor, the downtrodden, the blind, the lame, the weary, and the sinner. He saw him love God with all his being. He attested to his love of neighbor. Once he himself accepted the grace of salvation, he understood that receiving mercy and believing are not just feelings. They translate into actions. 
because real faith opposes discrimination, favoritism, partiality, snobbery. It opposes those and actively seeks to show mercy and love to others. Our Lord has asked us to love him enough to care for those he cares for, for those he died to save, for those, he says in Luke, to whom he was pleased to give the kingdom, for those he has chosen to become rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, whether they look ordinary or extraordinary. Open with me to Matthew chapter 25 as we look at that scene of final judgment from verses 31 to 46 of Matthew 25. I will read first, beginning in, in verse 41. He will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Or when did we see you look ordinary or walk into church, but we ignored you because you looked a certain way, your voice was a certain way, you smelled a certain way. And he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment by the righteous to eternal life. And this is judgment without mercy to those who have shown no mercy. But then let's go back to verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when, when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to, the one, to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And this is a true understanding of mercy. Those who have tasted of the mercy of God can show mercy freely, willingly, lovingly to those who need mercy. And brothers and sisters, everyone, is in need of the mercy of God, for everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it is our role, it is our privilege, it is our hope that in Jesus Christ we can show mercy and love to everyone, not by fawning to the proud and not by ignoring or being partial against the poor. And my prayer for us is that, oh, that we would hear the words of commendation on that day for having given mercy to one of the least of these having obeyed the law of liberty. We want, we should want, we must want to be doers, not just hearers of the word. These are some of the ways that believers can honor the name by which we were called. They can hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ without partiality. They can fulfill the royal law to love our God and love our neighbor. 
and receive mercy and honor on the coming day of the Lord of glory. And we can do that because Christ is risen and because all that we do is not in vain and all that we do mercifully, lovingly, righteously is to the glory of God who is worthy of all glory, power in Christ Jesus and in this church now and forever. So let us pray. Our Father, I pray that you would open our, our eyes that we may behold wondrous truth in your words, that we may believe the truth of Jesus Christ, that we may believe it enough to live by it. Oh God, as we pray today, forgive us for having sought after another. Forgive us for having not shown mercy. Forgive us for having been partial toward certain people. But also, we want to say thank you for your forgiveness and thank you for the joy we have in being freed from sin, being freed from partiality toward the law of liberty to show your love to our neighbors, to those who look different from us, to everyone who must call on the name of the Lord to be saved. So give us eyes to see. Give us the eyes of Jesus Christ so that we may look through the commandments we have to see how you look at the heart and not at the outside of appearance, O oh God. And let us as a church love one another and love God and proclaim the day of our Lord. Proclaim liberty and mercy to the poor and to the captive and to the blind so that you may open their eyes to see Jesus Christ as Lord who is worthy to be praised and worshipped and loved eternally in Christ Jesus. Amen. And church, we now come to a time